and our introduction into the church and church life. We'll begin by simply reviewing, and we're just going to walk through a quick review of where we've been. So go ahead, Robin, and let's just roll through these. We learned that the church was brought together by Jesus. John 10 taught us that my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So we know that the church is brought together by the call of Jesus. Second, we learned that the church was born together by the Holy Spirit. The new birth is what makes us a part of the adopted family of the sons and daughters of the living God. And so there's this calling. Jesus calls us. We hear him in our heart. We follow. But what empowers us to follow him and what marks us as his own is the new birth that was spoken of in John chapter 3. You must be born again. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Then we learn that in Acts, the church continued in this by being bound together by their continual devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. And so they labored to stay together. Jesus called them together. The Holy Spirit converted them together. But what kept them together was their continual devotion to the Lord's Word through the apostles' teaching, to prayer and trusting Him, to fellowship and being together, and to the breaking of bread, the remembrance of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. So we learned those, and then we talked about how the church has three tasks always. First, the task is to know and identify the gospel without falling into the two traps that always extremists fall into. The first is legalism and thinking the way we convert people is make them religious or make them moral, and that's the equivalent. That's not it at all. We also learn that licentiousness, by being amoral or immoral, just because of grace you continue in sin, is also a perversion of the gospel. As the church identifies the gospel, they also have to recognize the culture that they live in. We learn that there's two dangers in the culture. First danger was being unadapted or underadapted to the culture. And that was... We really didn't care about the people that we, we were going to reach. We didn't care to know them. We just wanted to check them off on our list and just say, we want you all to come out of that culture and join us. And so we retreat too much from the culture, and all we ever do is diss the culture. All we ever do is challenge the culture, condemn the culture. We also learned the other problem was being underadapted, where we only applaud and embrace the culture. First Baptist Church of Memphis, Tennessee, just recently overadapted, embraced the culture, and said... We want to ordain gay and lesbian ministers. And so this is an old Baptist church, been around a long time, and here they are over-adapting and embracing the culture and leaving the Scriptures. Then we learned that the church has a job, and that job is to be a movement that brings the gospel to the culture. That's what we do. We bring the gospel to the culture. There were two dangers there, we learned too much structure and tradition where we're all inward focused and we think that reaching people means making them like us rather than making them like Jesus. They're disciples of us instead of disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of religion or tradition rather than disciples of Jesus, our King and our Savior. And the other was being too fluid, anti-tradition and outward, where you cast off traditions that were valuable and purposeful and instead you just kind of would just they say fair, let it be. And folks really didn't understand what they were being called to, to leave their sin and to follow Jesus. 
And then we talked about one more thing, and that was that the church is given a specific job, and that job is to be witnesses, because witnesses are the ones who bring the gospel to the culture. Go ahead, Robin, next slide, right there. The job Jesus gave us is to take the gospel to the culture. We do this by being witnesses. These are Jesus' words. You shall be my witnesses. We learned last week about what that means, and we also learned about what a challenge it would be. So we talked about these challenges, four of them. Bring all of them up, Robin. Just go ahead and run until you have all four of them sitting there. There you go. Here were the challenges to being a witness. Distraction. We learned how the church can be ADHD and be distracted. Uh, We learned how the church can be intimidated by the pressure from outside. We learned how the church can be contaminated by sin inside. And we learned how the church could be exterminated by putting the church to death from the beheading of James and the stoning of Stephen and the threats to kill the rest of the disciples and the followers. We saw how God had prepared us for this, though. He had given us four things. Here they are. Inhabitation by the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the living God. Celebration of Jesus' salvation that keeps warming the fires of our heart. Devotion to the disciplines and to others as we get together and do the together things of the apostles' teaching and prayer and the breaking of bread and to true fellowship and organization for the handling of problems. We saw that. Now, we're going to need to hold right there for a second because in the book of Acts, we get this wonderful picture of how the church began to respond to these pressures. And how people respond to things tells a lot about them. Now, here's what I've done today. I, how many of you are on the Internet at all? If you're on the Internet at all, I need a hand way up, high enough to see. That's a pretty good number of people are on the Internet. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to summarize the Christian response on the Internet. In five slides, I want to show you how Christianity has taken on the world through the Internet and how we're known to those who are looking from the outside inside to the church. First, a bunch of angry people complaining, angry about everything, angry about government, angry about persecution, angry about all kinds of things. And so what the world gets when they see Christians on the Internet is this. Mad. Or this. Christians have become the international crybabies. Whining about everything that happens. Don't you see it? Am I telling the truth here? It's, it's nuts. Facebook and, and, and blogs. It's like, Wah! In Bruce Willis's wonderful adaptation of the story called The Kid. How many of you saw The Kid? Anybody see The Kid? It's great. In one moment, there's this person crying over their situation, and Bruce Willis goes, Why don't we call a ambulance? And I'm thinking, that's what we need to call for Christians. Because we find ourselves to be complaining about everything. If Starbucks does not serve our coffee in the cups we think honor Jesus, we're going to, 
There's a problem here. This is how the world is seeing the church. They're on the internet too. Not only that, we get this. I want to narcissistically show you how my life is superior to yours through Facebook. So here's a hundred selfies of me being better than you. In fact, I edited all the selfies to make sure you knew that I was better. And we've become a very narcissistic culture. One of the little blog, uh, little Twitter, Twitter posts the other day from Church Curmudgeon said, they call it a selfie because it's too hard to pronounce a narcississy. And so what the world sees the church doing is showing off how great our lives are. One further. I hate these. Keep scrolling if you love the devil, but like if you love Jesus. If you don't repost my post, it's because you're serving Satan. Oh, police. This is on Christian, Christian blog, Christian, on Facebook. It's like, what? Remember that the world is looking at us as witnesses. Oh, but let me give you one that's even further. Tell me that doesn't blur at all. Mixing patriotism with guns and Bibles. You say, oh, that's, this is the, no, this is not the stuff. I've been to Indonesia. Do you know what Indonesians think when you blend patriotism, Bible, and guns? Do you know what they believe? Here's what they believe. They believe that you want to kill them and that Baywatch is a Christian TV program. I'm not kidding. They say, do the Christians just want to kill all of us? Did you know that Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation in the world? It is the fourth largest nation in the world. We have missionaries sprinkled all over Indonesia trying to overcome this message that's all over American Facebook of Christians. That they think that since we're a Christian nation and Baywatch was presented and made in the Christian nation, that Baywatch is a Christian television program. Some of you are too young to know Baywatch. Don't go look it up. And they are deeply convinced that the goal of Christian America is the extermination of them. Now, there's a problem in how we present ourselves. Look, I, I, love, I am patriotic to the core. But we can't meddle the, muddle the cross with the flag. They're not the same thing. The flag has stood for some things that the cross does stand for, but it stood for many things that the cross stands against. America's the greatest exporter of abortion in the world. America's the greatest exporter of pornography 
in the world. We can't let our messages get mixed. I'm a Second Amendment strong believer, but we can't mix our message with our guns. We want to win them. We don't want to kill them. And they need to know that. And so when the pressure from outside came upon the church, they didn't become angry or crybabies. They didn't become narcissistic. Look at our lives. They're better than you. They didn't become, oh, we're just going to raise up the nation of Israel and bring down wrath upon Rome. They didn't do those things. They preached the gospel over And so what I want to do today is help us look at how the church navigated difficulty. Because how you navigate difficulty tells a lot about what your fundamental beliefs are. So, jumping into our outline, here we go. Now that you're mad, okay, now that you're mad, are you mad? A little bit? No, okay, I'm going to take your word, whoever that was. The first thing Christians had to figure out is, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. I know this almost, we've said it so many times, it's just lame, but it's true. It's not about you, it's not about me. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we're after. It's not about us. If we can't get this one, the truth is the rest of them won't matter. What these guys had done, what these gals had done, is they've lost their identity into Christ so that Christ was their identity. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. They had lost their identity into Christ. Their national identity, their ethnic identity, their individual identity, their family identity had been swallowed up in Christ so that their ethnicity still mattered, but in Christ. Their nationality still mattered, but in Christ. Their family still mattered, but in Christ. And so it had been swallowed up. It's not about us. Look in chapter 4. Wendy summarized this first point so good, so well for you English teachers, so well. Verse 8 of Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. This was it. It wasn't about Peter and Peter's gift that had been given to him and his ability to tell this man to stand up and to walk. It wasn't about any of those things. It wasn't about Peter's future. It wasn't about Peter's past. It was about Jesus Christ crucified. When we are given a platform, we have to decide who will that platform be about. Jesus gave Peter a platform by healing this guy. He did. He set Peter up with a platform. Jesus heals this guy. 
And Peter has to decide, what are you you going to do with that, Peter? Peter could have started a healing ministry. He could have been a traveling faith healer. He could have gone on the road with his show. All the people testifying, and he could have drugged this guy around to every town and said, I want you to see what I can do. Mm -mm. It was not about Peter, and he understood this. So he didn't get his selfie stick and take a click shot of himself standing with the guy going. He stood up, and he simply said, you know what this is about? You know what I'm about? You know what we're about? You know what everything's about? It's about Jesus. And so, we must clarify as a church in every platform God gives us, and God gives us a lot of platforms here. We've got this wonderful corner. We've got wonderful members and wonderful ministries. We've got a lot of things going for us. And our danger is, is that all of a sudden we think, we want folks to think Kingsville's cool. Or the place to be. No. Because Kingsville can't save a soul. We want everybody to know Jesus. And we have to work really hard to keep it from being about us. Because when it becomes about us, we start wanting our things and our desires and our way and our agendas. And it messes things up. And it gets us off track. So the first thing the church did in response to difficulty is they said, wait a minute, time out. It is not about us. We're standing before you. We're on trial today, but it is not about us. Here's who it's about. Jesus Christ. And he preaches the gospel. Look in verse 11. Chapter 4. And he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the very chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's about Jesus. But that wasn't all. They had to work through some other things. Number two, they determined whom they would please. The pressure is going to turn up. Round one is found in that first exchange between Peter and the leaders in verses 5 through 12. That's the first exchange. Heat's not up. But the heat's about to be up. It's about to get harder. It's about to get more difficult. And so in the second section, from 13 and following, they send them out and have a conversation among themselves. The leaders get together and say, whoa, something's happening here. Now I'm going to call your attention to the most important thing that's happening. I'm going to have to take you back to chapter 2. Three to get it. So just go back to chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 9. Remember that God is setting us up to take the gospel to the culture. The way that we do that is by being witnesses. So they're set up. That's what they're doing. But the culture is watching. So verse 9 says, And all the people saw this lame man who was healed walking and praising God. And then it goes on in verse 10 to say they were filled with wonder and amazement. 
And then in verse 11 it says, And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them. So here's what's happening. The gospel is getting to the culture through the witnesses. Satan is angry about that. And he says, we're going to put a stop to this. And so he incites the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. He incites the leaders who are jealous because the people are moving away from them and towards Christ. He incites them. Satan incites them. And here's, look in chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people. Now, this is very simple. God sent the church to take the gospel to the culture by being witnesses. That's what they were doing. And what Satan said is, do you know what we need to stop? We need to stop the message from getting to the people. That's all Satan wants. He doesn't care how moral you get up in your house. He doesn't care how self-righteous you get. He doesn't care about any other thing. He just wants to shut one thing down. He wants to shut down the transfer of the message to the people. The gospel to the culture. And so what he does has one goal behind it. Shutting Christians up. That's it. That's it. It's not a big, uh, sneaky plan. It's not a complicated thing that's being wrestled with. This is a very simple thing. All he wants is to disconnect the gospel from the culture. And so he comes in, Satan, inciting these people, and he threatens them. And if you get to chapter 4, get on down there. They bring them back inside the council in chapter 4. They've sent them out, had a conversation. Here's what they're upset about, verse 17. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people. There it is. Satan's at work, right in the middle of the Sadducees, the high priest, the council. He's right in the middle. He's at work among them. And he just wants them to do one thing. Would you just get these Christians to shut up? Just do that. And so that's what they do. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And so the the disciples get warned. And they have to decide something. Come down to verse 19. After telling them they couldn't speak any more in the name of Jesus, verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to him, you be the judge. Now, this is very important because when it comes down to the very bottom line, here is what you and I need to be about. We need to be pleasing God by taking the gospel to the culture by being witnesses. We need to be pleasing God by taking the gospel to the culture by being witnesses. Peter knew that this is what pleases God. Being witnesses, bringing the gospel to the culture. Peter knew that. He knew it was pleasing to God because God had told him through Jesus. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. That's your job to do it. And so what was Peter doing? He was doing what pleased God through Jesus. And so he was pleasing. He was pleasing. 
you and I have to step back and look at our speech. Look at our Facebook. Look at our blogs. Look at our Twitter. Look at our neighborhood. Look at our job. Look at our speech patterns around others. And we just have to ask this. Is this pleasing God? Before you ever hit enter on anything you post, you need to ask, is this pleasing God? Before you let a word out of your mouth at work, at home, in traffic, at the shopping center, at the DMV, you need to say, is this pleasing God? This is not really difficult in principle. But it is so hard in practice. And so what's happening is they had to determine whom they would please by what they said and how they did things. And so they had to make that decision. The church has to make that decision. The members have to make that decision. When we have a conversation with anyone, when we post anything, when we respond anywhere, we have to say this, is this pleasing God? Well, let's see how they did that. Next. They spoke out of the overflow of their hearts. Jesus said, and Matthew, and you can always remember this one, Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 12, 34, Jesus said this. The mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. So when you and I talk, when we post, when we blog, when we Facebook, when we Twitter, when we Instagram, when we, when we converse, when we have any kind of interaction that involves us communicating, what the Bible says is that our mouths are only regurgitating what's in our hearts. That's it. There's not like this little place between your heart and your mouth, and you know I don't really mean your physical heart. There's not this little place between your heart and your mouth where you get to insert stuff. It just comes right out. And Jesus said it. The mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. So whatever we're filling our heart up with is what we're spouting out. Now listen, what he says here in verse 20. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Now, this is a strange phrase in the Greek because it basically means we're not able to not speak. We're not able to not speak. He was saying, man, our hearts are brimming with Jesus. And because our hearts are brimming with Jesus, here's what comes out. Jesus. 
And when the church will come together and worship and let her heart be filled with Jesus, let their lives be filled with the Holy Spirit, what we'll do when we go out is we will speak out of the overflow of our heart. And what will come out is Jesus. My girls went to see Star Wars before I did. How many of you have seen the new Star Wars? Okay. How many of you talked a lot about it after you saw it? Oh, man, my girls got home and they're dying because they know if they say anything that it's going to be like this spoiler and it's going to ruin the movie for me. So they're just literally going... And they start having these little side conversations hoping that we don't hear. Why? Because something that excited them, it just kind of came out and they couldn't control it. When Jesus starts exciting us more than Star Wars, we'll be witnesses. That's just all there is to it. We're more excited about a football game or a movie or something we just bought or somewhere we just traveled to. And so our, our hearts are filled with things that don't matter. In the world, the world is longing to hear the gospel. We're talking about what we just bought and who just won the game. It's not that those things don't matter, but they have grasped our hearts. So we have trouble being witnesses. Finally, next to finally, like Paul, I say finally halfway through the sermon. They gathered, they trusted, and they prayed. And this is a this is an important thing. When they were faced with a command that they could not speak and that they would be punished which they were later punished by physical beating and then by death. They said, we've got we to figure out how we're going to respond to this. So what did they do? They came together. I cannot overemphasize the importance of the togetherness of the church. One of Satan's tools is isolation. He wants to separate us. He wants us to get mad at each other frustrated with each other. He wants us to fall out with each other. He wants to divide us. That's what He's after. And so He gives us a zillion reasons to not like each other, but Jesus commands us that regardless of how you like each other, love each other. He commands us. And so when they were faced with this, the first thing they did was they gathered. It says in verse 23, and when they had been released, they went to their own companions. What does that mean? They went to the church. They got released and they said, let's get together. You know how we need to deal with this thing? Let's pray. So that's what they did. They gathered, they trusted, and they prayed. I want to work a lot through the trusted part. I don't have a lot of time. I just need to give one moment to it because it forms the theology of the early church which helps us navigate things. It's found in... Verse 27 and 28. I want you to follow it carefully because the doctrine here is thick and rich and good and it's the nourishment of the early church. For in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. 
Many Baptists, as soon as they heard the word predestined, they go, don't move. They won't know we're here. Here is something that they understood that we've got to get a hold of. When they looked back upon the crucifixion, they understood something. That fundamentally in the crucifixion, the one who was at work was God. He was carrying out Isaiah 53. And he was working through the gospel of the Old Testament. So that when all of Satan's minions came together and all of Satan's plans came together, all they were doing was carrying out God's ultimate purpose. What is the worst thing that has ever happened in the entire universe? The death of Jesus Christ. No worse thing has ever occurred than when God appeared to us and we killed Him. Nothing has ever been worse, more horrendous, more vile, more sinful than the slaughter of Jesus. What's the best thing that's ever happened in the universe? The same thing. Because without the slaughter of Jesus, none of us have any hope. It was the salvation of So when they got together and they prayed, they knew something about God that you and I have to take in very deeply. And that is this. If God can take the worst thing that's ever happened in the universe and make it into the best thing that's ever happened in the universe to serve His ultimate purpose of redemption of His people, then what is He going to do with the small or bad things that happen to us? He's going to Romans 8, 28, every one of them. But God works all things together for, say it, to those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. They understood this. And so rather than anger, rather than crying and whining, they And they exercised their trust through prayer, gathering together and calling upon Him and saying, Oh God, when they gathered against Jesus, they thought they were winning, but they were just carrying out Your purpose. And they've gathered against us. And somehow, that's going to carry out Your purpose too. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go back at it! So what do they do? Number five, they stayed on task. Look at the end of Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They began to speak the Word of God with boldness. They stayed on task. What are you? You're witnesses. So when you come together, what do you want to be when you leave? Witnesses. What do you want God to do when you get together? Fill you with the Holy Spirit. Why? So you can go out and be bold. You see, that's what we're doing today. We're gathering to get bold. To be filled with the Spirit. To pray to God for help. To trust Him. So that when we leave here today, we will not be the same as we came in. We will be filled with His Spirit. And we will be bold, confident witnesses. Is that what we came for today? Did we come today 
because we want Him to make us able to do the one thing He's called us to do. Would you bow with me? As we close...